Chapter 9 of Sylvian Bruno by Lewis Carroll. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Jester and a Bear Yes, we were in the garden once more, and to escape that horrid, discordant voice we hurried indoors and found ourselves in the library. Agug blubbering, the professor standing by with a bewildered air, and my lady, with her arms clasped round her son's neck, repeating over and over again, And did they give him nasty lessons to learn, my own pretty pet? What all this noise about? the vice-warden angrily inquired, as he strode into the room. And who put the hat-stand here? and he hung his hat on Bruno, who was standing in the middle of the room, too much astonished by the sudden change of scene to make any attempt at removing it, though it came down to his shoulders, making him look something like a small candle with a large extinguisher over it. The professor mildly explained that his highness had been graciously pleased to say he wouldn't do his lessons. "'Do your lessons this instant, you young cub,' thundered the vice-warden, "'and take this!' and a resounding box on the ear made the unfortunate professor reel across the room. "'Save me!' faltered the poor old man, as he sank half-fainting at my lady's feet. "'Save you! Of course I will!' my lady replied, as she lifted him into a chair and pinned an antimacassar round his neck. "'Where's the razor?' The vice-warden, meanwhile, had got hold of Agag and was belabouring him with his umbrella. "'Who left this loose nail in the floor?' he shouted. "'Hamrit in, I say, Hamrit in!' Blow after blow fell on the writhing Agag, till he dropped howling to the floor. Then his father turned to the shaving scene which was being enacted and roared with laughter. "'Excuse me, dear, I can't help it,' he said as soon as he could speak. "'You are such an utter donkey. Kiss me, Tabby!' And he flung his arms round the neck of the terrified professor, who raised a wild shriek, but whether he received the threatened kiss or not I was unable to see, as Bruno, who had by this time released himself from his extinguisher, rushed headlong out of the room, followed by Sylvie, and I was so fearful of being left alone among all these crazy creatures that I hurried after them. "'We must go to father,' Sylvie panted as they ran down the garden. "'I'm sure things are at their worst. I'll ask the gardener to let us out again.' "'But we can't walk all the way,' Bruno whimpered. "'How I wish we had a coach and four like uncle.' And shrill and wild rang the air of the familiar voice. "'He thought he saw a coach and four.' that stood beside his bed. He looked again and found it was a bear without a head. Poor thing, he said, poor silly thing, it's waiting to be fed. No, I can't let you out again, he said before the children could speak. The vice warden gave it to me, he did, for letting you out last time, so be off with you and turning away from them, he began digging frantically in the middle of the gravel walk, singing over and over again. Poor thing, he said, poor silly thing, it's waiting to be fed. But in a more musical tone than the shrill screech in which he had begun. 
The music grew fuller and richer at every moment. Other manly voices joined in the refrain, and soon I heard the heavy thud that told me the boat had touched the beach, and the harsh grating of the shingle as the men dragged it up. I roused myself, and after lending them a hand in hauling up their boat, I lingered yet a while to watch them disembark, a goodly assortment of the hard-won treasures of the deep. When at last I reached our lodgings, I was tired and sleepy and glad enough to settle down again into the easy chair, while Arthur hospitably went to his cupboard to get me out some cake and wine, without which, he declared, he could not, as a doctor, permit my going to bed. And how that cupboard door did creak! It surely could not be Arthur, who was opening and shutting it so often, moving so restlessly about and muttering, like the soliloquy of a tragedy queen. No, it was a female voice. Also the figure, half hidden by the cupboard door, was a female figure, massive, and in flowing robes. Could it be the landlady? The door opened and a strange man entered the room. What is that donkey doing? he said to himself, pausing aghast on the threshold. The lady thus rudely referred to was his wife. She had got one of the cupboards open and stood with her back to him, smoothing down a sheet of brown paper on one of the shelves and whispering to herself, So, so, deftly done, craftily contrived. Her loving husband stole behind her on tiptoe and tapped her on the head. Boo! he playfully shouted at her ear. Never tell me again I can't say boo to a goose. My lady wrung her hands. Discovered, she groaned. Yet no, here's one of us. Reveal it not, O oh man, let it bide its time. Reveal what not, her husband testily replied, dragging out the sheet of brown paper. What are you hiding here, my lady? I insist upon knowing. My lady cast down her eyes and spoke in the littlest of little voices. Don't make a fuss of it, Benjamin, she pleaded. It's, it's, don't you understand, it's a dagger. And what's that for? sneered His Excellency. We've only got to make people think he's dead. We haven't got to kill him. And made of tin, too, he snarled contemptuously, bending the blade round his thumb. Now, madam, you'll be good enough to explain. First, what do you call me Benjamin for? It's part of the conspiracy, love. One must have an alias, you know. Oh, an alias, is it? Well, and next, what did you get this dagger for? Come, no evasions, you can't deceive me. I got it for, for, for... The detected conspirator stammered, trying her best to put on the assassin expression that she had been practising at the looking-glass. For... For what, madam? Well, for eighteen pence, if you must know, dearest. That's what I got it for. On my... Now, don't say your word and honour, groaned the other conspirator. Why, they aren't worth half the money put together. On my birthday, my lady concluded in a meek whisper. One must have a dagger, you know. It's part of the... Oh, don't talk of conspiracies. Her husband savagely interrupted as he tossed the dagger into the cupboard. 
you know about as much how to manage a conspiracy as if you were a chicken why the first thing is to get a disguise now just look at this and with pardonable pride fitted on the cap and bells and the rest of the fool's dress and winked at her and put his tongue in his cheek is that the sort of thing now he demanded my lady's eyes flashed with all a conspirator's enthusiasm the very thing she exclaimed clapping her hands you do look oh such a perfect fool the fool smiled a doubtful smile he was not quite clear whether it was a compliment or not to express it so plainly you mean a jester yes that's what i intended and what do you think your disguise is to be and he proceeded to unfold the parcel the lady watched him in rapture oh how lovely she cried when at last the dress was unfolded what a splendid disguise an eskimo peasant woman an eskimo peasant indeed growled the other here put it on and look at yourself in the glass why it's a bear can't you use your eyes he checked himself suddenly as a harsh voice yelled through the room he looked again and found it was a bear without a head but it was only the gardener singing under the open window the vice-warden stole on tiptoe to the window and closed it noiselessly before he ventured to go on yes lovely a bear but not without a head i hope you're the bear and me the keeper and if anyone knows us they'll have sharp eyes that's all i shall have to practise the steps a bit my lady said looking out through the bear's mouth one can't help being rather human just at first you know and of course you'll say come up bruin won't you yes of course replied the keeper laying hold of the chain that hung from the bear's collar with one hand while with the other he cracked a little whip now go round the room in a sort of dancing attitude very good my dear very good come up bruin come up i say he roared out the last words for the benefit of uggug who had just come into the room and was now standing with his hands spread out and his eyes and mouth wide open the very picture of stupid amazement oh my was all he could gasp out the keeper pretended to be adjusting the bear's collar which gave him an opportunity of whispering unheard by agag my fault i'm afraid quite forgot to fasten the door plot's ruined if he finds it out keep it up a minute or two longer be savage then while seeming to pull it back with all his strength he let it advance upon the scared boy my lady with admirable presence of mind kept up what she no doubt intended for a savage growl though it was more like the purring of a cat an uggug backed out of the room with such haste that he tripped over the mat and was heard to fall heavily outside an accident to which even his doting mother paid no heed in the excitement of the moment the vice-warden shut and bolted the door off with the disguises he panted there's not a moment to lose he's sure to fetch the professor and we couldn't take him in you know and in another minute the disguises were stowed away in the cupboard the door unbolted and the two conspirators seated lovingly side by side on the sofa earnestly discussing a book the vice-warden had hastily snatched off the table 
which proved to be the city directory of the capital of Outland. The door opened very slowly, and cautiously the professor peeped in, Agug's stupid face being just visible behind him. It is a beautiful arrangement, the vice warden was saying with enthusiasm. You see, my precious one, that there are fifteen houses in Green Street before you turn into West Street. Fifteen houses? Is it possible? My lady replied. I thought it was fourteen. And so intent were they on this interesting question that neither of them even looked up till the professor, leading Uggug by the hand, stood close before them. My lady was the first to notice their approach. Why, here's the professor, she exclaimed in her blandest tones. And my precious child, too. Are lessons over? Uh, a strange thing has happened, the professor began in a trembling tone. His exalted fatness, this was one of Uggug's many titles, tells me he has just seen in this very room a dancing bear and a court jester. The vice-warden and his wife shook with well-acted merriment. <laughs> Not in this room, darling, said the fond mother. We've been sitting here this hour or more reading. Here she referred to the book lying on her lap. Reading the, uh, the city directory. Let me feel your pulse, my boy, said the anxious father. Now put out your tongue. Ah, I thought so. He's a little feverish, Professor, and has had a bad dream. Put him to bed at once and give him a cooling draught. I ain't been dreaming, his exalted fatness remonstrated as the Professor led him away. Bad grammar, sir, his father remarked with some sternness. Kindly attend that little matter, Professor, as soon as you have corrected the feverishness. And by the way, Professor... The professor left his distinguished pupil standing at the door and meekly returned. There is a rumour afloat that the people wish to elect an, in point of fact, an, you understand that I mean an, not another professor, the poor old man exclaimed in horror. No, certainly not, the vice warden eagerly explained. Merely an emperor, you understand. An emperor, cried the astonished professor holding his head between his hands, as if he expected it to come to pieces with a shock. "'What will the warden? Why, the warden will most likely be the new emperor,' my lady explained. "'Where could we find a better? Unless, perhaps—' she glanced at her husband. "'Where, indeed?' the professor fervently responded, quite failing to take the hint. The vice-warden resumed the thread of his discourse. The reason I mentioned it, Professor, was to ask you to be so kind as to preside at the election. You see, it would make the thing respectable. No suspicion of anything underhand. I fear I can't, Your Excellency, the old man faltered. What will the warden? True, true, the vice warden interrupted. Your position as court professor makes it awkward, I admit. Well, well then, the election shall be held without you. "'Better so than if it were held within me,' the professor murmured with a bewildered air, as if he hardly knew what he was saying. "'Bed, I think your highness said, and a cooling draught,' and he wandered dreamily back to where Uggug sulkily awaited him. I followed them out of the room and down the passage, the professor murmuring to himself all the time as a kind of aid to his feeble memory. "'See, see, see, couch, cooling draught,' Correct grammar. Till in turning a corner, he met Sylvian Bruno, 
so suddenly that the startled professor let go of his fat pupil, who instantly took to his heels. End of chapter 9